What is up everyone, my name is Adnan Shafi and welcome yet again to another episode of Pariah Nation. Today we're going to be discussing a topic that I'm extremely passionate about and especially in my last year of university here in the UK, I've experienced a lot in relation to this topic and I've brought one of my friends and classmates onto the podcast today to discuss this topic at length. We're going to be talking about race and power. Welcome Emily though, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, where you come from and your experience with the race in power, having been born and obviously raised in the West. Hi everyone, I'm Emily. I'm a good friend of Adnan's. Um, know him from our course. And I guess my experience of race in power is very interesting because being a black person in the UK and particularly being a black person in Wales, there's this attitude that Wales is friendlier, is more mm. socialist, there's a clear red water. And, you know, as you, if you grew up in Wales as a black person, you know that all of these claims can be contested with quite clear um, examples that range from the everyday to the violent and brutal. Um, so it's always been an interesting relationship and it's always been very interesting to speak with Adnan about our personal experiences. So mm-hmm. very happy to be here. I mean, let's actually start off by, you know, what, what really brought us here. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to talk, we're not going to mention any names, we're not going to mention anything, (laughs) but how me and Emily like properly met was obviously, you know, you're in the West and you're one of the the only black students in your classroom. I do what's called like a a, a black screening. So (laughs) I look for any of the black students in my (laughs) class because for me, that's also just a sign of comfort. And after this specific event, I'm completely justified in saying that (laughs) I'm glad that I did that. Because now I was like, okay, so Emily, black person, da da da, another person, black person. And then we, we went into our class, yeah? Certain class, we're not gonna say any names here. And <laughs> obviously, this certain class were reading texts. And these certain texts were quite old, etc. And they had the word Negro there, right? And obviously, I'm a black person. So some of you white people who might be listening might be like, oh, well, well, you said the word, you know, right? We'll get into that in a bit. but. Essentially, that is the main issue that, you know, that we're encountering today. So obviously I went and I talked to uh, teacher A, <laughs> yeah, and I, I talked to teacher A about it. But even just from that conversation, I wasn't too eager to actually pursue it any further because I felt like my my specific points were being shot down. Uh, and like, even if it was, it was more like a soft shooting down, it's like, oh, you know, I see your point, however, Right. So, I mean, we can discuss that like all day, but I mean, Emily, what did you experience from that specific classroom? And like you can tell the next part of the story. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you're the first person that sort of experienced that sort of complacency or laziness in terms of being thoughtful and mindful of words that are being used and thrown around in seminars. And what happened was the week you didn't turn up, the, sim- the same thing happened to me because I was actually in the seminar. And I just wasn't really pleased with the way that um, we were reading texts that are old and we were basically quoting things from the texts and paraphrasing, etc. And paraphrasing things that you would not say in any other environment. And that's what bothered me because I thought that the whole point of this setting, we're in university, we're supposed to be engaging critically, Mm. being thoughtful, being mindful. And even if you're not sure, asking, potentially dropping your lecturer an email. Um, But I just was not too impressed with the way that we're dealing with texts that to some people in our class are actually extremely, extremely profound and extremely, extremely important to 
you know, the, w- the way we lead our lives and how we see ourselves as black people. Yeah. I'm not sure if you agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, the, the whole point is that we, we were really upset that non-black students, obviously taking from teacher A and uh, other people, I'm guessing, they thought that it was okay to say this slur. It's a, it's a slur. Let's call it what it is. It's a slur. And I think people often get confused and they're like, oh, it's hypocrisy. Why is it that black people can use the word and non-black people can use the word? But I think it comes down to the definitions. A lot of people say that, oh, if it's a slur, then it impacts everyone in the same exact way. That isn't true by necessity. It's a slur, and this slur is offensive based upon who uses it and who it's used upon, right? So if it's a white person or a non-black person using this slur towards a black person, then clearly there's a power dynamic there. And it's designed to put down black people. However, if you look into the literature as well, if you look into the writings of Du Bois, you look into the writings of Marcus Garvey, you look into Malcolm X, every single one of these authors, they either used it because of convenience, because that was the term that was used at the time, and a lot of them used it as a refutation of the concept of the word itself when it was used by white people. Because Negro by itself literally comes from the Latin word negro, which is black but it's been politicized so that when white people use it, non-black people use it, it's meant to degrade black people. But when black people use it, you cannot, you would never use it in a sense. And even if you tried to use it in that sense, it would be seen as satirical. The social norms of society will not, and the power dynamics, you don't have the power to oppress yourself. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think the belief is that just because we're in an academic setting, that language is somehow neutral just because we're reading and just because we're paraphrasing. Mm. And that isn't true. Language is not neutral. The whole point of these degrees is to teach us that language isn't neutral. And, you know, the event itself wasn't the thing that got me. Mm. You and I spoke about this. It wasn't, you know, the, the seminars themselves that got to me. It was the fact that you and I took our own time to connect with our lecturer, with teacher A, and say, we're not really that happy with what's happening in seminars and just on the course and we feel like the wrong attitude is being you know is being whipped up um if you can say that it was more so what happens afterwards that's what got me because i thought that engaging critically and disagreeing with lecturers disagreeing with the way um seminars are done obviously constructively i thought that's what you're supposed to do when you were encouraged to do to an extent mm. um so i thought that that was that was slightly hypocritical you know we're engaging and we're trying to take a certain degree of autonomy over our own education um in a way that i thought a lot of lecturers would like and enjoy and yeah you and i just didn't really feel like we were fully taken seriously or rather we were taken seriously but there was a clause you yeah. were taken seriously but there was a but yeah I mean, because, I mean, okay, to, to the credit of Teacher A, mm. Teacher A did address it in class. However, comma, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what we did actually find is that in a lot of these responses, and this is, I'm not just saying this, like, for Teacher A specifically. I'm talking about non-black teachers in general that I've had experiences with throughout my lifetime. It's more like a subconscious white fragility combined with white guilt combined mm. with this need to gaslight because it can't be i can't be racist yes it's like i i'm physically incapable of being racist like that's unfortunately that's the attitude that i get from a lot of people but at the end of the day it's like you can't be telling me that oh it happened only once or twice it's like if an act of i mean we're talking about politics here we're talking about people like fanon tarsis kabugere writing about things that language can be violent which is why there's obviously slurs 
otherwise, if there was if language couldn't be violent, we'd never have things like insult. We'd never have racialized terms, right? So if this is an act of psychological violence and it's happening in your class even once or twice, and you've not said anything about it, like we've had to come forward and say something about. I think personally, like you know, you, that's something you really have to consider, and like you know, correcting and rectifying within your teaching method. I mean, that's just me. Mm, especially when you know two students have come to you separately and have voiced their concerns potentially for terms that people are just becoming comfortable using just because they seem to be paraphrasing texts which in themselves are hundreds of years old. Yeah. That isn't the you know that's not the way it's supposed to be. If no one had told you and you know it hadn't been brought to your attention, maybe there could be some form of understanding as to why it hadn't been addressed before then mm. you know you've been given really two chances to address this and to reflect so yeah. reflect yeah and i think it's it's so important to uh to just sort of step back as a white teacher especially one on these courses because i feel like the moment someone's like oh yeah i have 20 years of experience in this field why am i listening to a student it's like if you're not black and you're studying black history and i made a video on tiktok about this yesterday you can't expect to be having the same experiential level of knowledge as someone else. You have an empirical form of knowledge. We have both if we're studying the subject. And I made the point that when you as a non-black person close these texts, which they might be disturbing for you even when you're reading about colonial violence, it's a lot of graphic detail that's being explained in those texts. The moment you close that book, that is the end. Like you can disconnect to that book your entire life. But these are our life experiences that have been put onto paper. So to what extent can we separate ourselves from that dynamic in and of itself? It's almost impossible. Like, you can't just turn off skin color. <laughs> like <laughs> Exactly. No, it is impossible. And, you know, you and I have spoken about this before. The words themselves are violent, whether they're alone or in a sentence or being quoted or paraphrased. It doesn't matter. They're violent. If the word was shouted at us in the street, it would be violent. Yeah. So why in a seminar is it considered not violent just because we're talking about an academic you know discussion and we're chatting about reasons to me it has the same effects and it's a word there's slurs i don't like to hear to be quite honest with you um so to bring it up to a lecture and to not have that sort of maybe element of understanding uh, understanding you would perhaps expect that definitely sort of took me by surprise slightly i don't think mm. i was disappointed i think i was just slightly surprised mm. i thought we just have sort of solidarity um yeah rather than the one sentence of solidarity but now i'm going to explain to you why actually it was okay and you shouldn't really be that offended yeah um that's what that's the attitude really wasn't it yeah i'd, I'd say i was disappointed but mm. it's more like i was disappointed but i was not as surprised because the thing is i mean we're dealing with the with the same school that allowed students that did blackface and they were mocking a teacher directly they allowed them to go on a retreat to go and think about their actions, you know. I mean, on, surely, surely, no tolerance policy for racism, but you're going ahead to do that. I mean, and the fact that I can just draw connections with that on a micro level, <clears throat> compared to Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, now getting off, right? It's like it's a, the justice system wants to empathize, especially with white males, but mainly white females as well. It's like the moment that you're out there, you're crying, you're making a scene, the the system wants to favor you and like this is not this is not even something that we just find like you know uh happening on a one-off like you know the fact that someone can go into a church and kill four people and then get burger king on the way out it's like mm. that's that like oh, 
we we'll end up going into a lot of things. But yeah, yeah, no, it's been a crazy few news days because yeah. Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty yesterday, <sighs> and we're sat here today talking yeah. about this. And then, oh gosh, the execution was also stopped the day before that, I believe. Or was it? Which day was it? I can't remember. I can't remember. It's, yeah. it was a crazy case. Yeah, it was, and the fact that, I mean, we're not even going to consider that a win, in my opinion, because mm. you can commute a like a death sentence to a life sentence but at least mm. give the man parole the parole board said commute the sentence mm. this man was literally waiting until the last second i mean i'll never understand surely mm, mm. surely i'll never understand and also the ahmad Arbery case is also going yes. on now yes yeah oh my gosh so i mean we'll, we'll have to see see whatever happens but speaking of race and power Mm. Specifically, I mean, I want us to rotate to a bit of a different field, mm-hmm. and I think that it's important just because COP twenty six just recently happened. Mm. I want us to talk, to talk about race and power in the field of ecology, mm-hmm. and one of the first things that actually springs to mind, and I could also be totally wrong. I'm open to being like you know, uh, pressed on this, but I feel as if if we're looking at the narratives of people, black activists or non-white activists in a lot of these fields, their narratives are downplayed. And by that, I mean, for example, Greta Thunberg has now become the queen. Like the, the moment you think of, oh, you know, climate change, you think Greta Thunberg. There's so many other people though that are within that field. For example, Vanessa Nakate. We have so many in Kenya, legit so many that are fighting uh, climate change, yeah? Their stories are never really told. And I mean, I feel like that's for me, it's a huge amount of erasure. And if you want to go even further, look at the way the media cut out Vanessa Nakate from one of the photos where there was those four white activists and Vanessa Nakate is the only black activist. They cut out of the photo without any explanation and they put that on the front page. I know, but that's just endemic of the world we live in. So to me, again, like we just said, it's not a surprise because if you're in the West, if you're in the UK, in the US, what's interesting about Greta is she gets so much negative press as well. Mm. So it's not even just the good and the praise. It's actually a lot of negative press, which I guess that's another conversation. But what I'm saying is I'm not an expert on ecology. I'm not an expert on sort of climate change and what's been going on at COP26. But what I'm saying is what we see with Greta, and I think I saw, I read it somewhere, you know, the Greta effect. Mm. It's just another example of the world we live in. Yeah, I think for me, it's not, I mean, I've done one mini course. I'm not going to come here and say I'm an expert on sustainable development. Just done a mini course on it literally in my second year. That was it. But we did a, a module on environmental racism. And that's that's only something that's creeping into the curriculum now but that's a separate topic for another day i guess what we're trying to say over here is that why does she have to be the center of the narrative yeah. right why can't it be anyone else and the fact that it's happened so subconsciously and i think for me that's a bit it's it's quite dangerous in terms of how it's always white people mainly in the west that are the ones that are being represented but if you actually look at it from this point of view who are being oppressed the most by this climate change essentially uh the climate change if you look at the global south it's a lot of non-white people who are being affected Mm. and shouldn't we be giving them a platform that's really interesting because did you i'm assuming you saw um mia motley's speech barbadian prime minister so she was it was just an amazing speech Mm. and she to be quite honest with you brought a lot of shame i think on the leaders that were there and Mm. and shame on the leaders that didn't turn up and i listened to her and i thought these world leaders should really be the ones mm. at the forefront. Activists are great. Climate change activists are great. But Mia Motley, you know, 
she's the head of state in Barbados. She has so much to say, a wealth of experience. She's quite literally seeing her island disappear before her mm. eyes and her neighbours. So I thought what she had to say was extremely, extremely interesting. I don't know anyone that didn't see the speech to, to watch it. Um, but it is interesting. And the thing is with social media and the world we live in and the news, when someone gets to a certain point, the snowball's so big that even if another climate activist came along, I yeah. don't think we could see a change or a yeah. shift in um, the narrative. You know, I think she's here to stay. Like, she's enormous. She's everywhere. Grass is everywhere. Yeah. So I don't see that changing in the near yeah. future. And I also feel like the fact that black people, I feel like a lot of people just push black people into a proverbial box where you can't be anything outside a black activist that's it you can't be good at finance you just like oh you're a black you have to be a black activist for you to make a name for yourself mm. in any of these fields but that was just one of the, the the couple of things that i wanted to talk about but um i also want to talk about how we have a lot of colonial ideologies that are sprawling within ecology and it's so unchecked mm. right one of the main ones that i've actually seen is this subconscious first of all it's more like cultural appropriation mixed with a white denial of non-white civilizations being in tune with nature so the first point on cultural appropriation i saw this funny oh i really laughed at this you <laughs> they have they have this mud house builder 3d thingy they call it tecla whatever it is essentially they're building mud houses and it's good for the environment but we've seen so much and the people are praising it by the way oh how smart how good eco green whatever right <laughs> but we've seen so much hate being directed at africans who have been doing this for thousands yeah. of years yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> where is why the double standard yeah yeah the um, image of the mud house that we see so often yeah. but if it's for eco purposes so who was doing this I, uh, I think this. it was an Italian company, actually. Right. Mud? <laughs> yes, a mud house. And, like, they, they 3D print the house. They're called, uh, I think it's even, they have another self, Adobe Houses or whatever it is. And, like, now it's like, oh, that's the cool thing. It's like, we're in tune with nature, you know. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> so no one else in all of human history was in tune with nature? Apparently Up not. until now. I mean, even if you look at a lot of different Native American ethnic groups, like, you mm. know, sub-tribes, etc. Like, what you're actually going to find is that there's so many practices where the environment is taken into place, mm. I mean, into account as well. Even in South America with the, the rainforest as well. People found ways to coexist with that environment. They didn't have to just say that, oh, we're going to exploit it until it's fully depleted. Mm. It's more like, how do we form a relationship with the environment in a way that's actually healthy? Mm. So the fact that there's a lot of denial of that, or like the fact that colonialism destroyed so many different cultures that were pro sustainability mm. that for me is something that actually needs to be be considered for yeah, sure yeah and destroyed entire landscapes destroyed yeah. entire communities pushed people to cities pushed people to you know the urban centers um but still sort of kept them gated out of the nice plush swanky civic center um it's definitely interesting and even the way i always find it interesting the way that transport um, was built during colonialism and we all know it was an export economy we all know countries were built primarily with infrastructure to allow resources to yeah. leave the country um, so I always find it interesting that a lot of transport systems that are still here derive from colonialism so how 
would countries and states go on to be, you know, in this country we talk about transport all the time, when we, we, we you know, travelled halfway across the world and destroyed transport systems for so many other countries, and then we, we sort of look down our noses on other countries, you know, that's sort of like a common thing in the UK, looking down our noses. But I always say a lot of the time when we're discussing these issues in uni and outside of uni, we're the problem or we, we were the problem. We still are the problem. So yeah. it's always been interesting. Um, yeah. And it's interesting for us to talk about it when it's not necessarily something we're being marked for or assessed on. Mm. It's just nice to have these conversations. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And what we'll do actually is that I'll just finish on this point and then we'll talk for a bit and then I'll close off uh, just for a break. And then we're going to release a part two because I know you guys like it when the, the episodes aren't too long. I've seen <laughs> the way you guys are responding to the shorter episodes, so we're going to make a shorter episode. Then this one will come out a few weeks later. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the, the final point that I wanted to to raise in regards to race and, race and power in terms of ecology. Um, some of these arguments that you're seeing are just reproducing the dehumanization that we saw from colonialism. And one of the ones that I've actually seen on TikTok be, it's two very huge creators actually, when they're talking about veganism, yeah? Right? It's like, you, you guys talk your talk, right? It's like, oh, talk your talk, you just do whatever you guys want. But the moment that you start to equate, like the fact that eating meat is actually normal in several societies across the world, and the fact that you equate that to slavery being normal at one point in time, and then you're using that as a point. Like, why is slavery the first thing that you thought of? <laughs> yeah, why is that the, why is that the benchmark? <laughs> that was so... Where did that I even didn't come see from? this. this was, oh, I don't have TikTok. Oh, my gosh. So, I don't know. You probably know that vegan teacher. If you don't know that vegan teacher, be glad that you don't know that okay, vegan teacher. Okay, I don't know this person. They, they compared even meat eating to the Holocaust. Wow. Yeah, it's like... Where does that come well, from? Was the, the, the maths of it even doesn't make sense in my head. The it's maths, just, uh, the basic logic. Honestly, I don't even know you. The thing is, it's like, my question is this: Why was the first thing that that was that? What was that the first thing that you talked about? And even going forward from that, it's like sometimes you feel as if, and we talked about this just before the podcast. Sometimes you feel like animals are being put above black people, like in terms mm. of the value of life the inherent mm. value of life like the, mm. i don't know if you guys saw the the headline i was just so oh my goodness they were writing a headline mm. about cats being taken from afghanistan i saw this like saved oh my god what is i know but i did read there was i think the story was i'm not making excuses at all but i did see there was some form of miscommunication between what actually happened and the pilot i don't i don't really remember i didn't really read too much about it but i did see the headline and it did gain a lot of attention on Traction, Twitter. Yeah, yeah. People love to talk about stuff like that. Um <laughs> but no, you you did mention it to me. I I've seen those headlines. Yeah. I'd have to read more about it. Yeah. Cuz at, at the end of the day it's like even I think I'm focusing more on the headline and mm. not necessarily cuz I think yeah, there must have been something that happened behind the scenes, but the fact yeah. that you know people were so captivated by that story, how heroic saving cats from Afghanistan. It's like, "Oh my goodness, you." Mm. I mean, Speaking of which, we'll actually, what we'll do is we'll stop here, guys, because we're going to keep going for, for a long time. <laughs> but come back to the next episode, yeah? We'll we're going to be talking about race and power in journalism. And we're also going to be talking about race, power, and decolonization, just to wrap it up. But thank you guys so much for everything. We're going to be 
um, just finishing the episode here. Emily, do you want to say anything before we... we yeah, we're going to be back apparently, you know, anything Adnan needs, <laughs> I'm going to be here to talk away. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much, Emily, again for your time. <laughs> and I'll see you guys either one or two weeks from now. <laughs>